Welcome to the Cutting Onions Podcast with Bobby Shaw. This is a bonus episode with a special guest. I recently had the chance to sit down with my friend Dan Hasseltine, Chief Development Officer and Founder of Bloodwater and Lead Singer for Jars of Clay. Bloodwater has a mission to gather and support and equip African organizations as they work together to address the water and HIV AIDS crises in their communities. You may be asking yourself, what is an interview with a Grammy award-winning musician and a nonprofit that's been around for 15 years have anything to do with culture building and leadership development? Well, as it turns out, it has a lot to do with those two things. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss making an impact, creating culture, mentoring other leaders, the ability to solve problems with an open hand, changing the arc of someone's story, and so much more. It was an honor to sit down with Dan for this conversation that is rooted in making a difference and creating opportunities that otherwise wouldn't exist. Culture matters. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Hasseltine, and we'll see you on the other side. My name is Dan Hasseltine. I, uh, I am the singer for a band called Jars of Clay, and I'm also the founder of an organization called Bloodwater. I grew up up in Massachusetts and uh, spent uh, my first 15 years up in New England and really enjoyed being a New Englander, but currently live in Nashville, Tennessee area, um, in an area I call the Deep South. One of my favorite Franklin. cities. One yeah. of my favorite cities. <laughs> it keeps growing. It's growing uh, at such an amazing rate right now, and um, but I think I, I think I love it. I love all the new things that are coming to our city. So what do you do to keep people out of Nashville? Because I've heard that actually you're trying to talk people, not you personally, but like, you know, the people who are from Nashville, like, no, you don't want to move to Nashville. Yeah, uh, it's it's a tough one because it, it is such a great, it is such a great city. I feel like maybe the pedal taverns and the um, bachelorette parties are going to do that work for us. People are going to come for a weekend and be like, oh my gosh, I almost got run over by a pedal tavern, and then maybe they won't want to move here. It'll be too much of a risk. And I just read that Nashville is now the number one place for bachelorette parties now. It it's, actually eclipsed Vegas. It is. We are so, <laughs> so honored to have that <laughs> distinguishment. Uh, yeah, I love it. Oh, so Yeah. Good. So I'm a, I have a, a family. I have a wife. Uh, we've been married for about 20, 24 years, and I have two sons uh, that are getting older by the moment, um, one who's 18 and one who's 16. And uh, yeah, it's been an interesting life growing up as a traveling musician uh, and you know, trying to balance family and yeah. um, other, other elements of what it means to be a whole person, uh, all the while being out on the road and doing concerts every night. Um, so I've, I've learned a lot through that experience. I'm currently off the road, which is great. I've been off the road for about seven years, um, working full-time as a, a development uh, officer for Bloodwater. Um, so taking off the founder hat, putting on a staff hat, and just going out and, uh, and just convincing people that the work that we're doing in Africa matters. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you think about Bloodwater, uh, and you mentioned that, can, can you kind of give just a little bit of a history of Bloodwater? Sure. Yeah, Bloodwater began, um, it was an idea that, that formed while the band was touring. We were about 10 years into our career, and we started hearing stories from various people about 
HIV and AIDS in Africa. And uh, sorry, I put that, that on the on Take silence. a call. Yeah, let's have a caller. Uh, <laughs> let's take a caller. Um, so, yeah, Bloodwater started um, in uh, about 10 years into the, the Jars of Clay career. Um, we had been hearing all these stories about what was happening in Africa around HIV and AIDS. And, um, and at the time, we had a pretty good platform. We had a, a pretty broad audience. We were touring a lot. So we were in various cities mm. uh, throughout the year. And we thought maybe there's something we could add to the conversation, maybe get our, our fans involved. Um, went to Africa, spent enough time there to learn that most of the communities that were wrestling with HIV and AIDS were places that didn't have access to clean water. Right. And we we saw that there was this there's kind of a lot of resistance around HIV. People didn't understand the disease. They didn't understand the context of what was really happening. And so people were resistant or afraid to get involved. And we thought, well, if people don't want to get involved through HIV and AIDS, maybe we can convince them that maybe they can help people have access to water. And that's how it started. We've been going now for about 15 years. And we've learned a lot. We've said that at the very beginning we wanted to be a, a learning organization, uh, which just meant that, you know, we were artists and musicians, yeah. not development people. And so we we obviously didn't have the expertise to go in and do work like a lot of other organizations right. would. We could only go in and say, hey, what are you doing and how can we help you do it? Yeah. Uh, do it better or how can we just support the things that are going on? And it was surprising how few people on the ground and in the places where we were visiting had ever heard an organization from the West hmm. ask the question, what are you already doing and how can we help? Like those questions never came up. They, and so we learned early on that, that we wanted to be a different kind of organization. We wanted to make sure that we weren't just elbowing people out of the way in their own communities to solve a problem. We wanted we wanted them to be the heroes of the story. So, yeah, so we've been doing that now for 15 years. I think that's magic, and, you know, we'll definitely talk more about that as we go through the podcast uh, because it's something that you and I talked about this a couple of years ago, and it's really meant a lot to me over the years, and I think about it all the time, and I think about it in the context. I think that if more businesses, more more organizations, whether they're nonprofits or they're a for-profit or school or whatever, I think if more people had that type of mentality, I think the world would be much, much better off instead oh, of yeah. just going in thinking that we have the solution to whatever problem it is that you have. And, yes. And, and so I know we're going to talk more about that. Um, so when you think about your career as an artist and now transitioning into this phase, what are some of the hurdles that you've had to face and that you've had to overcome? Um, it was it was really scary, I would say, to, to jump into a new career. Um, the band started when we were in college. Like right. I was, I was a sophomore in college. I was in my early twenties and had been doing this work for a long time. And it was a scary thing to just say, "Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna shut this machine down and uh, and stop." Basically, the thing that was bringing us our money. Right. Um, doing it. Uh, yeah, it was it was just a really scary thing. So I think the first hurdle was just all of us in the band being able to overcome that fear that if we stopped doing what we were doing, that there wouldn't be anything on the other side of it. Right. 
and I and it's easy when you're doing something for so long to be tricked into believing that that's the only thing you can do. Um, and and I think that was that was part of that fear was just saying, okay, um, we're basically going to burn the parachute and hope we can fly. Right. And we ended up having to to try to learn and uh, what the entrepreneurial um, vision is always you build the ship while you're sailing right 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 <laughs> so, right yeah. yeah and so i feel like we were having to do a little of that which sounds really glamorous when you read it in a business book doesn't it not yeah. so much when you're actually living it no because because it's impossible really like <laughs> and yeah and it's just fraught with all kinds of opportunities to just sink um so we we had to first overcome that that resistance because we knew we wanted to get off the road we knew that yeah. we were done with that season like there was just too many times when we were sitting on a stage playing shows and in our minds we're thinking why am i here right why am i not what am i doing family? yeah and and so we all knew that we had to do that so there was a motivation to change it just was hard to do it i think yeah. what's amazing though dan is that when you think about you and the other th- you know, the other three guys in the band, your bandmates, like you all had to make that decision kind of collectively at yes. the same time. Yeah. And all different paths that have mm-hmm. still kind of intersected. But it's, you know, that's that's really daunting when you think about that. Cause, yeah. Because you're talking about four people's livelihood and, and you know, not mm-hmm. just you. Right. But you guys were able to make that work. Yeah, it, it worked. And, and, um, and also just the idea that we were going to try to pursue things separate from mm-hmm. each other. Right. Also. Right. Because we'd worked as a team for so long. And then to go, okay, well, what are the strengths that I have individually? What are some of the things that I've suppressed because somebody else in the band did that better? Right. So there's even even sort of some of the social makeup of the band. It's like being in a family, right? Where, yeah. where you assume the role based off of the personality types right. of, of your family members. So if you have an older brother who's the funny one, then you're not going to be the funny one, even though you might be. But you just you but have, you've you never had that opportunity. You yeah. haven't had the opportunity, and so for us, there was um, there was kind of this great mystery of well, what are we going to be like when we're not working with each other, right? And doing when we start doing different things, what are the the strengths that are going to start to rise to the surface? Well, and that's a great segue because that was going to be my next question: is like, what was that first thing that you did after you figured that out? You look, we've got to do something different. We've got to change. Like, what was the first step for you? The first thing that I did when we stopped touring, we got off the road, is I bought a few tools and a bunch of wood, uh, a bunch of lumber, and I went into my backyard with my kids, and I learned how to build forts. That's amazing. And it was, for me, it it was a palate cleanser. Wow. It was just this chance to step away from the work that I had been doing for so long and immerse myself in something completely different. Um, wow. and, and I just it was just time that I needed. I, I felt like I hadn't been able to really engage with my family right. um, for you know, 20 years, really. Most of my kids' lives I'd been touring. Yeah. And, uh, and so to come home and just go, okay, I'm taking two months and I'm going to basically just be here and we're going to design a fort and we're going to build it and then we're going to tear it down and build something else. And, and we're going to learn how to use tools 
when I was a kid, I never really learned how to use tools. I didn't have a relationship with my with my dad that that gave me the opportunity to to do the things that most people would say are the initiations right. into being a man. You know, right, right, no, absolutely, uh, yeah. So that was that was a big thing. Was all right, we're going to do this together, me and and my my kids and I. So yeah, uh, you know what I love about that is that. And I didn't even know that story. Is is that you did that without really knowing what it was you were doing, and but your kids had to have loved it. Oh yeah. I mean, Dad was home, and you were doing something totally different than you'd ever done before. Right. Yeah. And you know, there were many times where either one of us could have lost, you know, a hand or a finger or. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. But we we did we it was there was something great about that. And now, years later, I I love that my kids have the confidence to go out in the garage and pick up the tools they need and go build the thing that they're thinking about in their heads. Like they, they have the skill set and confidence that I didn't have as a kid. Yeah. And I, it's, so there is that ripple effect. I didn't know that that's really what I was, was instilling in them right. at the time, but to see it now, it's nice. That's a gift to be able to see my kids go, Oh yeah, they, they've got this. They Absolutely. know what they're doing. Absolutely. So I don't know if anyone's asked you this question before or not. I'm sure they have. But, you know, I certainly see you as a leader. I don't mm-hmm. know um, at what point in your journey you saw yourself that. But I guess that's my next question is, you know, when was the moment that you thought, you know what, this is, I've made the transition. And now I'm in this role. But now I'm actually leading. Like, when yeah. was that moment for you? That's a really good question. I don't know that I have ever been asked that question. I had to really think about the the idea of um, the consciousness of being a leader. Like, right. what does it mean to to go? Okay, I can self-identify as a leader. And um, I guess yeah. you know to really kind of help maybe like prime the pump on that question is like, was that ever a thought you ever had in your head at any point? Like, I'm gonna be a leader. Was that ever was that ever anything you thought about? No. No, I don't think so. And, you know, my, I was probably like most people, like the high school, the junior high years in the, the 80s, yep. like that was some tough stuff. And <laughs> I feel like I had the life beaten out of me in, in those early days. So I don't know that. So it would have certainly taken some time uh, through college to get to a point where, where right. I was like, okay, Maybe I could be a, a leader. Right. I think it happened. It probably happened the same time that the band began. Yeah. Because I was a, I was just a keyboard player. I wasn't a, uh, wasn't a singer. I had never really sung at all in my life until the band began. And we actually, we had to draw straws to see who was going to be the, the singer in the band. And I actually drew the shortest straw. So I didn't. I was a very reluctant frontman for a band. And had to learn how to be able to command an audience or um, get up on stage and be demonstrative enough to make people care that we were even up there. All of that stuff. We were terrible at the beginning, and I had to learn that. And I think that was also the process of learning, okay, I I can do this. Like, I can guide people. I can command certain attention. I can use the platform I have and offer opinions towards things that are happening in the world. Um, I can take this power and use it for good or evil. Like learning that kind of thing when you're on stage is, um, it was very valuable. Now I still, you know, my I'm 
still an artist and so sure there's also that crippling self-doubt that that is always ever present uh and so that that means that i'm always having to overcome that at the same time right so there's probably even though i was becoming more comfortable in my skill set i was also reluctant to say well i'm a leader right um that came much later it came my my sense of being a leader probably came when I reached age 40. Got it. There was something about turning 40 where I felt like I was older than the, you know, I now I had a, a generation behind me that I could mentor. Yeah. And maybe that's what leadership meant to me in a lot of ways was right. like w- when I'm old enough that I have enough experience and wisdom to be able to um, offer that to somebody else that's coming up behind me. Uh, that was a piece and that didn't, I don't feel that I was comfortable in that until I was about 40. So how does that look in the context of Bloodwater for you leading? Yeah. Um, for Bloodwater, Bloodwater is, it's, it's a complicated way of leading in some regards. And, you know, one, one thing was it felt very natural to talk about mobilizing people for a good cause. Because in a sense, I was leading, but I wasn't the point. And uh, hmm. um, he, he, as a younger guy, I think I could have said, well, I'm a, le- a leader is... Like you, you felt know, like the, you had to be the guy actually in yeah. charge for you to lead? Yes. And, I, and that's a very uh, immature view of leadership probably, right? Because leadership isn't being the guy. It's right. Leadership is actually being able to... Um, take that coat off and not be the guy, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, but Bloodwater was one of those things where it was very passion-driven. It was very justice-driven. I've always been a kid that has had this um, this deep, deep-seated sense of justice. Um, I have always... It's the one part of, you know, for all of the, the ways that a person can suppress emotion and for guys, you know, and boys, we, that's just something we've, we've generationally done. We just keep pushing all that emotional yeah, stuff down. It's not intuitive. Yeah. For sure. The justice thing was the one thing that just pushed through all of my filters. Like wow. there was nothing that I could use to push down my emotions when I came up against an injustice that really um, that connected with me. When my heart was engaged, I had to talk about it. Um, I had to do something about it. And Bloodwater was just one of those things to see what was happening and um, realize this was something I wanted to pursue. There probably wasn't really any stopping that train when it started. A few years ago, you shared a story... Um, I, you know, and I was in the room for it, lucky enough to be in the room for it, <clears throat> about your um, trip to China that you took, that kind of first trip to China. Yeah. And how that was a real pivotal moment for you. But one of the things that you shared that I think was so powerful is that we all seem to have these ideas about what justice looks like and, and you know, how to make the world a better place. And we're very quick to say, you know, I'm going to go do this. And then, you know, someone challenges you, right? Like your yeah. friend that you had said, okay, really? Right. Really? Mm-hmm. So then why don't we go do that? So when you think about that trip to China and, you know, it's completely different, but 
you know, what was that moment for Bloodwater where you realized we have to do something? Yeah, it, it was um, the moment that I found kind of the, I guess the moment that I found the human connection mm. to what was just a crisis. Yeah. Like it, we can all be swayed into joining a movement. Sure. Like there's energy to that. There's, um, yeah, there's just the gravitas of, of stepping into where the current is flowing. Um, but for that to then stop just being a movement and start being um, that steady obedience in the same direction that takes uh, space over a longer period of time, it doesn't just sort of wither out after mm. a little bit of, of uh, once the energy and the zeitgeist right. kind of leaves right. that um, it, I think it has to become human. Like it has to become relational. And for me, it really was in the, the meeting of people and sitting with people that were wrestling with HIV and AIDS mm. to hear them tell their stories, uh, to sit with kids who had been disowned and kicked out of their homes because they were HIV positive, you know, to talk to school teachers even who would say, yeah, we don't, we don't let HIV positive kids into our school because they're going to die. And we only want to invest in kids that are um, going to live, you know, when you start immersing yourself in those sorts of stories and you, and there's a person at the other end of them, mm -hmm. um, then it it becomes uh, it becomes more of a passion. I like I find myself in their story. I see how there's certain kinds of injustice, although not the same in uh, in context. Uh, there's injustices that I've I've felt as deeply in yeah. my own world, and I thought, well, this this is something that I can't can't stop looking at. Right, you know the thing that you can't unsee. Exactly. Yeah, and I think Steve Garber, uh, he likes to ask the question. So he's, Steve is a board member for Bloodwater and author, great, amazing person. But he asks the question: Now that you know, what will you do with what you know? And I think that that was just the question that we had to keep asking. I love it. I love it. So as you think about your journey as a leader. And and uh, and I know it's really just been since early age, since you just turned forty. But when you think about all the things you've learned and the things that have helped you to become a better leader, and you talked about your desire to help other leaders, the next generation, which I feel like we have a responsibility to invest in that generation. I mean, mm -hmm. we have to. And and uh, so, if you were going to share something with a young leader that you were mentoring, like, and, and but you could only share one thing, like, what's the one thing that you would share with them that you think would help them the most in their journey? Hmm. Get a good night's sleep. <laughs> no, I, I think there. It's hard to it's hard to focus in on one one piece. Uh, but I I think. And oddly enough, this it plays against so much of my story being in the music industry and the way that that community really operates and how dysfunctional it is. But um, what I see in this generation right now is a, a terrible lack of trust. Uh, some very warranted, 
but but also um, I find that you've got all of these these kids mm. that are coming up with great ideas and um, the problem is is that they're ideas that have already been right. tried and worked through um, but they don't trust the generation that came before them because the generation before them has messed up a lot of things right um, but there is there's something about the ability for um, that generation of leaders to, to flourish um, that is bound to their ability to trust the people that have come before them. Mm. And, and I think that's a very important piece. Like they have to be able to, um, to, to not start so far back. Right. Um, start from a different place. Uh, you know, if there is a point where we've learned something, then, then take that and, and then run with it. You know, even if you don't agree with that other generation, even if you don't see eye to eye, that's okay. And it's, it's what I hear you saying is that you need to take the opportunity to learn everything you can. Yes. Yeah. Learning is, is yeah, be a lifelong learner. Don't take stances. Don't plant flags. Like that stuff yeah. feels, um, feels like it just puts people in a position to have to be defensive or right. to isolate them from other good ideas. Um, the minute you say this is how the world works and you plant that flag, if the world doesn't work that way for somebody, you can't engage that person. Mm. Um, you don't get to, you know, unless you're willing to backtrack and humble yourself and pull that flag back out of the ground. Yeah. Um, I've had to do that yeah. more than a few times in my yeah. life. Yeah. Well, and I think we're taught to do that. We're, we're taught that it's a really honorable, great thing to, to take a stand and right. plant the flag and, um, draw a line in the sand and all of that because it, it somehow makes us feel like we're more uh, in control right and, yeah and more powerful right. yeah yeah and but at in the end the ability to learn to ask that question well what if I'm what if I'm wrong um, and be able to embody that at times it doesn't mean you question all that you are no. but but to be able to to just take your ideas and carry them open-handed so that other people can come in and weigh in on, on the problems you're trying to solve or the way that you're trying to live your life, um, that's going to make a huge difference. Um, we, I think we see it more and more things that people are polarized. Yeah. We're tribal. We yeah. form our groups and we separate and we silo and we do all of those things, and yet yeah. um, that doesn't get us anywhere. And then we wonder why that next generation of leaders yeah. why they don't want to pay attention to us or why they don't want to follow our lead right it's not hard when you think about it in those terms of of, of yeah. the position that we put them in mm -hmm. it's it's oh yeah it's really difficult yeah. i think that's fantastic uh, i think there's so many lessons in what you just shared that i think for all leaders to really realize that like you know you can do that if you want to but you're going to limit yourself and then you're also going to limit the people that you're trying to develop and lead. If yes. you continue to plant those flags and you take those, you know, hard lines and say, you know, this is the way that it has to be. I think, I think there's a lot of lessons in there. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. Um, one of the things that I, that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm trying to figure out the right way to ask this question because, because in the context of organizational culture, 
um, you know, which is which is probably a you know ten year old term, right? You know, we right. weren't really talking about it in the early two thousands, and and now sure. everyone's talking about culture, culture, mm-hmm. culture, culture. And I'm a huge proponent of having a good organizational culture. So I guess where I'll start with the question is when you think about it, and you think about Bloodwater, or even in the context of of you know as a working band, why is culture important? Hmm. I think culture matters because it. Um, how do I? I'm trying to answer this the right way. Like, I think that culture is bound to our work, which is bound to our identities in a mm. lot of ways. And um, the the way that the things that we put our hands to, the work that we've set out to do in our lives, um, are it's a reflection of um, who we want to become. Right. Uh, and, I, and so I think if there's a bad working culture, mm-hmm. Um, it is a, it is a direct kind of nemesis to the hopeful thing that we want to become. Absolutely. Um, I know that was a very vague way of, of no, presenting no, no. that, but um, but no. I think it's why culture matters is is because you can create a culture that that assigns work as just the task at hand, hmm. um, and that's what it becomes. Right when a, when a person's when the culture of the workplace is toxic or threatening, it distances a person from the work that they're connected to. Absolutely. Um, And then it just becomes a task. Yeah. Um, But I think work is a part of what it means to flourish. Yeah. Uh, To put our hands to something, to complete a, a goal to be part of something that's missional and purposeful. Yeah. And the missional and purposeful aspects of it just disintegrate if culture doesn't exist and it's not a, a, a positive culture. Yeah. I heard someone say recently, and I thought it was really interesting, that everyone has this ideal of, you know, you get to a certain point in life and you're going to retire, right? Like, yeah. work is over, work is done. <laughs> and the reality is work is never done. No. And shouldn't ever be done. Right. You know? And, and, uh, but I think that's a shift for some people because they're always thinking about, all right, 10 more years, 15 more years, 20 more years. Cross then, that line. And then we're done. And then I can yeah. go do whatever. And instead of using that and really as an opportunity to go do even more or, yeah. or maybe to take someone along with you or, mm-hmm. you know, bring someone along with you. Um, so yeah. I think that's, no, I think that's a great answer. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think that, I think we say one thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and I work with a lot of leaders who don't understand, you know, when they say, I want a culture. Well, you have a culture. It may not be the one you want. Right. But you've got one. Yeah. And, and so, you know, understanding that and then understanding what they've done to contribute to that culture mm-hmm. and what they need to do. And maybe it's that they've planted a flag or they've taken a hardline stance on something and they need to back that. You know, they need to walk that back. Yeah. I think that's incredibly important because there's a lot of people out there. I think in the world, whether it's nonprofit or, 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 you know, whatever that, that, that think that everything is fine, everything is healthy, everything is good uh, because they're looking at a P&L or they're looking at the donor report or they're looking at whatever it is right. that they're looking at, right? Instead yeah. of really doing the work to understand, kind of doing a culture audit, like, yeah, where are we really? 
Like, who are we really? Yeah. <laughs> How do we really line up with the core values that we say we have as an organization? And so. what a scary thing to do, though, like, to engage in that, because some, some cultures aren't even ready for that question yet. You're right. Right? They, they, don't even, they haven't even gotten that far because, because you can ask that question to a bunch of employees and say, all right, what, what is our culture? Yeah. And they're not going to be able to be honest. Right. Because... Because we've not <laughs> because we've not provided an environment for them with which to yes be yes. Um, the culture honest. that precedes yes. the culture yes uh, yeah yes you know you know when I think about the question that you just said earlier you know that uh, you know Steve asks is yeah. is is such a powerful one I'm not sure that some organizations are really ready for that question which is when you find out what it is you're going to find out what are you going to do with it like yes. I think that's that's yeah. that's that's so powerful well and any good I think any good work culture is going to be grounded in a, a holistic view of people. Yeah. Um, and just what does it take if I'm if I'm helping the people around me flourish, then that's going to affect the work. It's mm. going to affect uh, the conversations that are happening. You know, you can at that point maybe you can remove the water cooler, right? Uh, right, <laughs> from the exactly. office you can exactly yeah because no one's having to have these secretive conversations about things you're going well we were actually trying to create an environment where everybody gets to succeed absolutely because if you're not if you're in a role and and i know that this it happens that we end up in roles where um we're not really allowed to succeed um we shouldn't stay in those places too long no because it means that you're not in the right fit. Right. It's not playing into the strengths and the things that you're good at yeah. or the things that you want to be able to learn and be challenged by. And and so it's not really worth being there and can destroy a culture just as much. Um, so, um, but there's two sides to that, right? There's there's the leadership side, which, which is if they're not helping people succeed, then, um, then there's a flaw there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love what you said, too, about you need to be operating in your strengths. You need to be doing what you're best at. And I think sometimes organizational cultures don't allow that to happen very organically. Mm -hmm. But once you get everyone in the right place, they're going to do the right things at the right time. I mean, that that's yeah. probably the best argument for, hey, let's really understand the culture that we have and what could make it better and making sure those people are in the right place doing the right things. I, I just yes. am a huge proponent of that. and Yeah. Because I see it all the time where... You know, you have someone who, you know, who is in a role that they have no, they're not happy. Right. And you're not happy. So yeah. why don't we both be happy and let's figure <laughs> out where they belong. And yes. if they're a good cultural fit for the organization and they should be a part of the organization, mm -hmm. then let's put them where they belong. You know, yeah. where they're going to be happy and they're going to feel like they're contributing to a high level because they will be because they're going to be doing stuff that they love to do. So yes. I'm so glad you said that. Well, that and I think also having a, under an understanding from from the you know the first part-time intern all the way to the executive director and CEO what the organizational yeah. um, strengths what the organizational um, values are yeah um, those Absolutely. things matter a lot like when you sit and look at okay what are the what are the five key values of our company yep and then because it's one thing to have values it's another thing 
to instill those values in all the people that are working right towards that whatever mission it is or product that you're creating right right um and i think that's a lot of times where um culture gets yeah um diluted a little bit is because people don't know enough about what those values are supposed to mean you know we just totally we're, we have integrity and um you know all of these kinds of great words that we have for right. cultural value but if we're if we don't if not everybody understands what those mean then then yeah everybody's finding a different way to embody those things and that can destroy a culture if you can't define it you can't expect it right yeah it's just impossible it's impossible i yeah. totally agree so when you think about this idea of culture, what have you done? What have you helped do? Because I know it's not just you. Yeah. But what are you doing to help create a strong culture? And how have you connected that culture to your vision for Bloodwater? I know there's a larger mm-hmm. vision, but yeah. when this thing first started back in 2004. Yeah. So what have you done to connect that idea of creating that strong culture to the vision of Bloodwater? Um, yeah, a lot of the, the vision was... Uh, Bloodwater wanted to create on-ramps for people's expression of um, whatever the injustice is that they wanted to to invest in. You know, like right. The, we, our whole goal was is we we saw a lot of people being told that there's problems in the world, there's crises, but they weren't provided any on-ramps right. to do anything. Right. So you just saw a lot of angry people in the world. Exactly. And and so how do you create we may be seeing some of those people now. Oh, wait, I should I say are. that? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we are. Yeah, we, I think we, we are. really are. Yeah, we are. No, it's true. Um, it's it's like like we become that little kid who hasn't figured out his words yet and wants something badly but can't express it and get just so they fly off the handle and throw a tantrum. Like this is what our culture was like, the world culture. And so we wanted to be create on ramps and opportunities for expression that would would fit uh and to me that that was centered around creativity Mm. um and it was centered around this idea that every person has value yeah um that is a core piece of blood water culture Uh, these two things like okay everybody has value in the organization everybody will have ideas everybody needs to be given the tools to have you know the tools being the on-ramp to see that those ideas can succeed so in that in that sense like bloodwater our attempts are always to have a very open conversation about the way that we're doing the work we're doing yep um there are hierarchies in terms of um title yeah but in a lot of ways it's just title right um when we're all in the office, there is a sense of um, collaboration where where the various departments can interact, and there's no sacred space for the person who does marketing versus the person who's the African programs director. You know, everybody everybody can speak in, and everybody could have a good idea, and so we try to foster that. Um, I think we try to uh, make sure that. We're always checking up on each other as a culture. Um, we want to make sure that people are healthy. Uh, Bloodwater has a very, um, we're in a kind of a unique space in the faith side of things as well. But we do pray together as an organization. 
Um, we don't all go to the same churches or feel like-minded and all of that, but we do at the core want the best for each other and believe that um, that there is more to this life than just us. Right. And so we, we make sure that that's a part of our, our culture and our routines. Um, we do try to stay very um, connected to the values of the organization. Um, we try very hard to, um, to one, be a learning organization. Learning is teachability is, is a, a big core value for us. And so we want to be that, you know, have that posture in the work that we're doing around the other employees, um, around people that are volunteering, our donors. We never come into a space and go, we're the experts in the room. Yep. Um, we, we try to come in as the people that have the greatest um, thirst for learning. You know, I think that's such a great segue, Dan, you know, to a question I want to ask you. It's not on the it's not on the interview questions, but it's really from you. A couple of years ago, we had a conversation. We were in the office. I was uh, just in town and I came by and we chatted for maybe a half hour, 45 minutes. And you had just returned back from Denver. You'd been mm-hmm. at a donor update meeting. You'd been out there to kind of share, I think, from a recent trip that you'd yeah. taken. Mm-hmm. And you shared something with me that day that I just haven't been able to shake. And it's kind of all embodied in this one in this one little thing, but then I want to unpack it a little bit. But you talked about changing the arc of someone's story, and you know, then then you kind of you know you gave me an example of what that was, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't shake it. But then when I just hear what you said just a few minutes ago about not trying to elbow in, always be a learning organization. We don't necessarily have all the answers. We may not be the expert. One of the things I love about what Bloodwater does is that when you go into communities, you're there as a partner versus yeah. in there as trying to make it all better yourself, you know, trying to be the savior. That's not what right. you're trying to do. And and so I'd love for you to talk just a little yeah. bit about that because I think, I think that the context of helping change the arc of someone's story, I think, applies to every business, to every organization, to every culture. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it does. It starts with that sense that every person has this core value, um, and and so if that's if that's really true, then the the worst thing you can do for a person is come in and solve a problem that they're trying to work on, right? Right. Come in and just elbow them out of the way. I the the example I often give is is really that scenario where you're, you know, maybe you're working on a math problem or something or you're picking up a Rubik's Cube and you're trying to figure something out and there's someone standing up like over your shoulder right. hanging and going, just do, just, if you, just turn the, and then if you, and then they finally just go, just get out of the way and let me fix this. Right. And then they solve the problem. Um, the problem may be solved at that point. But not for the person who is working on it. Right. Like, it's not solved for me right. if somebody pushes me out of the way. Um, because what, what has happened is now I feel that I have an inability to, to solve problems. Maybe I, maybe I don't have what it takes. Maybe I'm not worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, those sorts of um, ideas, I think, come in pretty Absolutely. strong in that kind of situation. And when we do that on a global scale, you know, the U.S. We're, we're sort of famous for coming in, or infamous for coming in, and and solving problems that people aren't 
trying to fix themselves even. And, um, and you just find that if there's no ownership, then projects fail, solutions fail. So, you know, we, we travel all around Africa and we see uh, wells that are in disrepair from other organizations that have come in and just said, you know what you need? I know how to solve your problem. We'll drill a well. And they go in and they drill a well, but there's no ownership by the community. It breaks. They don't care. You know, it's or like, even know how to fix it. Or know how to fix it and know where to get the parts. And they're not gonna they don't wanna feel beholden to some organization to come in and right. fix the thing every time it breaks. They you know, that's it just keeps stripping away at a person's dignity. And um, the best way to create um, change is to affirm the dignity. When someone comes up next to you and says, oh, you've got this. Oh, you can totally do this. Well, let me just, let me help you here. This is, let me help support you. I can give you a tip here or, right. you know, whatever that, that kind of support looks like. Um, to empower a person and equip a person to f- solve the problem that they're trying to solve that's that is core leadership 101 yeah right you don't want it we're not trying to create taskmasters right or or people who just are lemmings or just soldiers in a sense we want people to be able to think and be creative have critical thinking and solve the problems that that they're capable of solving you know a few years ago <clears throat> i remember when uh, you crossed kind of that big mark with a million yeah. people have been provided clean water, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember that wasn't long after we had this conversation about changing the arc of someone's story. So it got me thinking about like how many lives have been extended as a result of the work of blood water that maybe, you know, another decade, another 20 years, another 30 years, who knows? Right. Right. Yeah. And who knows what those people are going to accomplish because of that investment. Yeah. And I think that is so powerful. It's, it is something to think about, right? Um, I don't do it too often. It, it is, it's overwhelming yeah. in a lot of ways. And it's just it's hard to fully grasp. And I never, you know, and certainly there's just my, own, my own bent of like, I don't ever want to put, because I don't, I don't look at myself and go, look, look what I did. Right, um, of course, yeah. Uh, but I definitely think it's amazing to consider like this investment that I make can change a person's life and that could change a lot of people's lives right uh, from that the life. ripple effect yeah. yeah from that life um, yeah who knows where the cure for cancer is going to come from or the next you know president of a country or the person that's going to solve some great pro- problem because they were the one who had been taught that they have the capacity to overcome adversity like when you instill that kind of thing in people you know you can overcome the obstacles that that are plaguing you that changes things for people it absolutely does and and this is such a a uh such a small example to the one you just shared but i remember this happening to me in the restaurant industry i mean it's true of my story Mm -hmm. when i was growing up but it's also true when I was at Chipotle, and I remember this in 2005, I remember being in a meeting. I was a brand new director, mm-hmm. and I was just really happy to be in the room. I was just trying to learn. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to listen. And I had just moved to Texas from Kansas City, and um, 
you know, it was a mess. I mean, there was lots of work to be done and mm-hmm. high turnover and low sales and all those things you don't want, right? And I remember there was this person presenting and she made this passing comment about this concept that she heard from In-N-Out, which is another restaurant company, yeah. Love In-N-Out, about an internal, she called it a job fair, internal job fair. And I just wrote down internal job fair and circled it. Yeah, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to define it, but I knew I needed something, right? Because yeah. I was having to get on a plane and fly back to Texas. And so we kind of come to this realization as an organization that we continued over the years to hire people from the outside and bring people in. And they weren't a culture fit. You know, they had the experience. I'm using my air quotes. They yeah, had the experience right. on paper. The resume looked great. Mm-hmm. They interviewed really well. You know, all those things that in the overall scheme of things don't mean jack. Yeah. And so we were losing like 80% of the people that we'd hire from the outside. And so as an organization, we realized, you know what? We have some really great people that are working on tortilla or working in the grill or working Mm -hmm. on salsa. And they've been with us for five, six, eight, 10 years. I bet they want, they might want to lead. Right. So I flew, I actually flew to Houston. I was on the way to Houston. I didn't go back to Austin. I flew to Houston. I met with my leadership team and I just said, look, we don't, look, I don't know what this is. I wrote it down. It's three words, internal job fair. I, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. But we created this internal career fair with Chipotle. And, you know, Dan, over, over the next six years, seven years, we had hundreds and hundreds of people that just rose up because someone took an interest in their development. Someone cared about them and their hopes and their dreams. And I remember the first time we had a group of people that came in because they wanted to be a kitchen manager. It was just, mm-hmm. it was it was emotional. It's hard for me not to get emotional now to even right. thinking about it because these are people who came in who'd never been given an opportunity yeah. ever to do anything. Mm-hmm. And in all reality, they were actually better than some of the people that we were hiring. They just didn't have the experience. But over time, we talk about changing the life of someone's story, you know, yeah. changing the arc. You know, I've watched people who spoke not much English at all learn how to become a leader. And three or four years later, they were driving a company car. They were running their own restaurant. It was yeah. incredible, right? So mm-hmm. a small example, right? It's yeah. not clean water and, and that, but it's the yeah. same thing because it changed their life, which then impacted the life of their whole entire family and possibly their kids. And so right. it's just things you just don't know about the generational impact that you're going to have when you invest in somebody. Yeah, well, and I think we all live in a, in a certain kind of crazy tension where you've got we know internally like that i have the ability to do something i can do this thing i can i have the capacity to be great and but the rest of the the life around us is constantly saying you're not worth anything you don't you couldn't possibly do this there's no way that that's right you're going to succeed there's too many obstacles and and we all, I, I mean, at least I can't speak for everybody in the world, I guess. I can speak for myself. <laughs> I know what it feels like when I'm in a conversation with somebody and that person describes mm. part of me back to me. That's really true. Yeah. Like the first time someone said, you know, you could, you were really good at this. Um, it was like this resonance happened. It, it was... It was the thing that it, it was a phrase that just had so much power because it it was the first time like all those other notes were not resonating with me. Right. All those other things saying you can't do this, you can't possibly 
com- you know, compete in this way or do right. this sort of thing. And you go, and then the one note is the one that is the harmony to the thing that I thought I believed about myself that was actually true, which is, yes, you can be great. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and you're still thinking about that moment and yeah. you're still thinking about that conversation. Absolutely. Yes. And so what you're describing to me is, is going to each of these people that have been told, you know, you, you don't speak the right language. Right. You don't look the right way. You've never been able to hold a good job. You've never been able to do this. You've never been able to do that. There's no possible way you can overcome these obstacles. And you're coming in and going, Hey, I think you could be really great at this. Yes. And that note resonates and then people it just it's it sets them on a different path. Absolutely. And and it really does and and it changed their future and from something as simple and as life-changing as showing a kind word and providing support and providing the coaching and so I just so I just love it. So yeah. I I'm I just really appreciate you sharing that because it's something that really it it gave me language to something that I had been struggling to be able to quantify that work that we had done, mm-hmm. you know, at Chipotle, and yeah. it was really helpful for me. Wow. So, so I appreciate that. So, so when you think about your journey, and you think about your entire career. What piece of advice, if you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Mm, Boy, you know what? I took myself really seriously. Mm. Um, I think I would have liked to have laughed more. Um, I don't know if that's possible for some people. You know, for me, (laughs) for me, I, I... my life is full of incredible experiences, opportunities and things that I have, yeah. the places I've gone, the things I've seen, the people I've gotten to be a part of their lives, the, the rooms I've been in. Um, it's just incredible. Mm. And I, I don't say that as a, sure. as a way of you know, puffing myself up. I just, I kind of gasp at it and I go, what? I could never have... I didn't orchestrate any of that, but right. but I certainly didn't enjoy it in the moment. Um, I wish I had been able to enjoy it a little bit more in the moment, just been present. Yeah. Um, a lot of, I think, my life, most people's lives are lived in the what am what do I have to accomplish next? Right. What do I have to get to next? Right. And we don't enjoy the moment to just right. be present and. Yeah, and for all the ambition we have, um, I think we lose uh, the joy of doing the work we do, and yeah. uh, when we when we don't get a chance to just observe it and go, wow, I'm sitting in this room and I'm having this conversation, and right. what an incredible thing and what an incredible gift. So I think just to be able to have had that um, peace of mind back then to do that, I wish I could have. I think that's great advice. I think that's great advice. Enjoy the journey. I love it. I love it. All right, so now we're coming into this part of the interview, which I love. This is what I call the fast five. Oh, great. So what is your your go-to order at your hometown restaurant, your favorite hometown restaurant? I'm a breakfast any time of day kind of guy. Love it. Speak my language. Yep, so I'm going to go 
there's a couple of spots in, in Nashville or Franklin where I live and I'm getting French toast or I'm getting, uh, getting pancakes. Um, I'm a bread sweet breakfast guy. Nice. Awesome. Very good. Um, what do you know now? Kind of tying back into the other question, I yeah. guess, but what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you first began your career? And I guess I'll ask it both ways, as an artist, mm-hmm. and then also here at Bloodwater. What yeah. do you know now that you wish you would have known then? Um, what I know now, as an artist, uh, my my piece of advice that I give to young people in the in the music community, they say, "Hey, what can I do um, to become a professional musician?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, go get a business degree." Um, there you go. Learn the thing that you're not inclined to do on your own, um, and that that I wish I had known. I know now how important that is, right? And I would have. I wish I would have taken that on before. I'm always going to practice my instrument because I love playing an instrument. Sure. But I'm I'm never going to go learn how to run a business. You Got know? it. <laughs> so that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Um, on the blood water side, um, I think it's around abundance. Hmm. Uh, I think it's easy to be competitive in the nonprofit sector. Interesting. Um, because it seems like the dollars are limited. Mm. Like there's a finite amount of, of people who are going to invest in the things that the mission cares about. Yeah. Um, and so I think that f- would force a certain kind of competition. It's not healthy. And the reality is, is there is enough. That's right. There is always enough. And there is, we live in a place where there is an abundance. And I wish that I had had that mentality earlier on when I was young and was super competitive about building the organization and right. making sure people were funding blood water projects instead of somebody else's projects and right. um, instead of being collaborative and just trying, to figure, out how trying to, to figure out how to solve the problem together. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. great advice. That's great advice. I think that's, I think that comes with, I think you gain that perspective, you know, with time. I yes. think yeah. now you're 15 years in mm-hmm. and you know you look back and you see that and go okay we could have done that differently but now you're able to share that you know with that yeah. next with that next person who has an idea to solve whatever issue that it might be because yeah. I think you're right I think that abundance mentality it's funny it's come up now a couple times over the last few months when I've been speaking with people on a wide range of issues it's just mm-hmm. we just hold on so tight yeah we just do and the more we have the more we feel like we've got to hold on to what we have. Yeah. When the true reality of our scenario is yeah. there's enough. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. What are you curious about right now? Uh, politics. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> what am I curious about and, right now? And everyone um, else who happens to be listening to this podcast would yeah. echo that. Yeah. Um, I... I do well. I do find myself interested in um, in the conversations about. Uh, I think I think our political climate is is horrible right now. Terrible. But it's also a great opportunity. Yep. Like we are learning things about humanity and fear and people's motivations uh, <laughs> that have been so kind of pulled. Like the bandaid is ripped fully off. We are seeing this wound. The way it is, and uh, there's something really fascinating about that for me. I I am enjoying kind of looking at what our society is and what we thought it was, what I thought it was, and now seeing what it really is. Right. Um, so that that space is interesting to me. Yeah, 
So, you know, when you think about it and you think about the climate that is out there right now and you think about, you know, kind of taking the names out of it, but when you think about the people that are involved at the highest, highest levels of government, yes. Was it this underlying current was always there and it's just been exposed? Or do you think that it was just kind of a, this moment of where people would kind of rally towards? Because to be honest, like, I mean, I, I've grown up like you've grown up and we thought we had some of this behind us. Yeah. And as it turns out, we don't. Yeah. So I'm, I'm equally curious about that. And mm -hmm. I think I'm equally frustrated by that because I'm like, it seems like we have really digressed it would seem that way that we've digressed oddly i also think that this is affording us a really great opportunity to look at things like racism yes um uh, things like cultural biases yep. that we have yep. and actually deal with them i agree um there is yeah i think we we tended to think that it was solved um, a lot of these problems, but the reality for most people, um, like where I live in Williamson County in Nashville area, Tennessee, um, you talk to a white person who grew up in Franklin and you talk to a, an African-American person who grew up in Franklin and you will get two very, very different stories mm. about what life in that small town looks like. Absolutely. And, uh, and I'm, I've never necessarily had to concern myself with one of those stories. So I'm actually glad to have that, <coughs> excuse me, to have that opportunity. Right. To have my eyes opened and to see it um, for what it is. <clears throat> it sounds like I'm tearing up. I'm actually not. I just have something in my throat. Um, I could be tearing up though. Whatever is better for the drama of the podcast. <laughs> um, but but just the, to have the ability to learn, yeah. Like it's like I I can't just gloss over it anymore. Right. It's too present and it's affecting people that are my neighbors. That's right. That's awesome. When you think back over all of your experience, what is maybe it's a um, a time or 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 maybe it's just a um, it could be anything that maybe you learned, but what is something that you look back at as you look back at it now? What is something that you failed at, but on the other side of it has actually made you a better leader now? Mm -hmm. Um, I have, there, I mean, there's, there's plenty, right? Uh, <laughs> start the failure list. Right. Um, actually I really loved uh, I'm not sure who who presented the idea that failures aren't necessarily failures. No. They're just us looking at the story from the wrong end point. That's interesting. Um, like that whole idea, like we think the failure is when right. the 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 business stopped functioning like we thought it would. And, right. And the actual that's not the end of the story. The story keeps going. Instead, for ten you know, years, and you realize why yeah. it wasn't operating the way you wanted it to. Made right. the corrective yes. actions, and then it ended up being yes. hugely successful. Yeah. So, in terms of the context of failure, though, right? But, but not to uh, avoid the question, um, I yeah, I have done a few things. One, 
like on, on as an artist, I have um, I have chosen not to listen to voices that were more experienced than my own. Um, I think artists we we can become very uh, um, protective of our vision of what we want to create, and sometimes right. we can we can avoid everybody else's input into those because we feel like it's going to hurt our vision. And and I've done that many times over on on for records that I was making for tours that I was getting ready to do that we had people speaking into those saying, hey, what if, if you tried it this way, it might be better, or this might communicate something that will help. And, and we've had tours fail. We've gone out on the road and not had audiences and seats and have watched, um, you know, audiences and our platform diminish over time um, because of being stubborn and not listening. And, and I think at this point, um, I'm I'm much more of a listener now. Like I've definitely learned to uh, to give everybody a seat at the table, which I think has been yeah. like a thread through this whole interview, right? That, yeah. that you know, from just from being a learning organization to yeah. now what you're saying on the other side of that, mm-hmm. that you're now a better listener. Yeah. So that would be that's definitely one. Um, I think I. Um, I understand the mentality of people who um, who have like social anxiety, people who think that everyone's out just to take a little piece of them. Right. Um, that having been on that side of of the perception, I've I've experienced that enough to go to the other side and go, you know what, there's still a huge value in trusting people. Yeah. And so I tend to I think that if I'm good at something, it is helping people step further into relationships rather than avoid them. Um, I was really good at not telling people my story and my problems. In a band, it's easy to to go out on the tour bus and think that everybody is like a family out there. And, right. and the reality is, is it's just a group of people traveling on a vehicle um, mm-hmm. together alone. Right. And... Mm-hmm. Like our band, we did that really well. Like we didn't really know what was going on in each other's lives. For as much time as we spent together, um, we just, we never went to those places. Um, and and that was a huge failure. The failure to take the opportunity to step into relationships with people. Um, and that, having now on the other side of that, recognizing that failure, it has made me so much more willing to sit down with people and be more vulnerable, to share my story, to talk about problems if there's depression or, right. um, you know, just whatever the the struggle is to be able to have people in my life that know my story enough um, that we can be transparent that way. Like, I'm constantly encouraging people into that space now. Uh, I love it. Yeah, and that matters. I'm going to take a minute here because uh, you just brought it up again, and I'd love to hear you talk about this, but what do you think it makes... Why is it so hard for people to be a lifelong learner? Because you talk about that, and I think that's so incredibly important. I mean, is there a risk to allowing yourself to be a lifelong learner? What do you think it is that keeps people from doing that? Um, I think I think people want to have order. Hmm. They want to be able to have an expectation met. 
right? I, I do that. Like I, I go to the fridge and I put a can of soda in there that I had, you know, drank just a little bit of. And then I know when I go back to the fridge that that can of soda is going to be there and I can get that same drink. I want to be able to defend, depend on my right. idea of what's coming next. I think right. there's security in that. There's safety. Uh, there's, there's a level of comfort in that. Um, and that. so I think we, we plant, we plant flags that are agreements. Mm. This is the way the world works mm. because I need the world to work this way. Um, I need to know that if I do a, that B is the result. And so I'm going to make that, that's the rule. Yep. I'm going to do a B is the result. And, uh, and I think there's comfort in that and people in an ever changing, constantly evolving space and world, we need some sort of structure. Right. And so we build it ourselves. Until A doesn't equal the B right. result. Yeah. And that's the problem is that you can plant that flag, but then things will change and you really aren't left with many options. Mm. Um, and most people don't pick the option that is, oh, I'll just pull the flag back up and learn more and, and then I can put the flag in somewhere else <laughs> or hopefully not put a flag in anywhere. Right, but, right, right. Um, and so that's where we create, you know, tribes and stances yep. and wars, I think, come out of that. It's just people trying to hang on to the construct that they set up, the agreement with the world that they think is the way the world should be. Yeah. Um, so you either, you're going to have to fight somebody or you're going to have to isolate yourself from them. Right. And in either position is not good. No. So, you know, how do you just hold those ideas, agreements with the world, open-handed? Open-handed, yeah. yeah. I love it. What is one thing that you think is not taught as much as it should be? Now, you haven't been a part of two great organizations. What, when you think about leadership, um, and you know, both in terms of how you lead people and how you lead an organization, if you're talking to a young business student who went out and got that business degree, yeah. what's one yeah. thing that's not taught as much as it should be in terms of how to lead people and how to lead organizations? It's a good that's a really good question. Um, because I think there's yeah. this tension of, here's what I learned, here's what I believe to be true, mm -hmm. here's the management theory behind whatever principle we're talking about, yes. right? and then there's the reality of someone's really messy life or yeah. a messy organizational you know, problem. Yeah, I, I, it, I think there's something about um, the holistic person that, that yeah. feels like it's missing. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean you have to shift the entire focus of the way business is taught. Um, but, but there is maybe a lack of in integration between what a person's passion, vocation, and occupation are. Wow. We still sort of create these as separate things. When, if, if it's possible to have them all overlapping, Absolutely. it would be really great. Um, but, it, but it's more than that. It's, it's about the quality of life that a person has and the way that whatever business system we have, how it is, um, is influencing 
the world, like on an environmental level, like the ideas of responsibility, not only to, um, to the s- stockholders, right, but also to the people who live in the neighborhood, right. and the the people that work in the company. Like, just I think there there are models that talk about you know the triple bottom line mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think those are really absolutely social those, responsibility. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that's a big piece that that's maybe is yet to fully totally agree. find its its footing but is becoming more important i think as we see i mean we see it now like we're creating products that are having dramatic effects on the environment that we're creating products that somehow make life easier and make some people a lot of money but are also hurting people mm. in social spheres or whatever yep. like yep. and and so it's the Jurassic Park, um, you know, I know that you can do this, but should you? Right, you know? right, right, exactly. <laughs> know we do know how to make the ferocious dinosaur, but, but is, is that there really a point a where idea? we ask the yeah. question, should we? Yeah, and right. um, I think being able to pause and, and give a greater connection or tethering to all of those pieces of the world. Like, a business is not just a business. It's a business that's tied to humanity, that's tied to the environment. It's tied to the ecosystem. It's like just it's all of these pieces that that it actually has influence over. Um, and I think that if there was a more kind of a, a perspective that held all, held all those things in balance, it would be be pretty nice. I love it. You know, you got me thinking about something else that that I've been writing about a little bit, and that's this whole idea of emotional intelligence. Mm. Yeah. Because you know, and I think that's part part of what you have to have a, yeah. a really higher EQ in order for you to really be able to understand some of those issues that you were mm. talking about. Some of the relationships between right. an initiative, an idea, a product, yeah. whatever it is you're doing, whatever your business plan says. Yeah. You know, what's the human? What's, what's the, the human side of that? Yeah. You know, one of my favorite authors. Um, he's written some really great books. Um, you know, he's written. You know, he's written Good to Great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, built last. Yeah. And Jim Collins, um, but Jim Collins, you know, he used to be when I would hear him talk, and I always listen to his books because I just love hearing him talk. Yeah, he's got this cadence. It's very, very deliberate. Mm-hmm. Very deliberate cadence. Over the last five years, maybe a little longer than that, his cadence has shifted a little bit. Yeah, and I think that there's a, um, I think there's a higher level of EQ there. Maybe that comes with a little bit of age. You know, he's 61. Right. Um, but around that same time, his wife went through a major health crisis. Mm-hmm. And um, I was reading about this. And then in, in every interview, in fact, I just listened to an interview last Saturday. He was on The Knowledge Project. Long interview right. with Shane Parrish. Great. Great conversation. Yeah. But there was this point in that talk where if I didn't know it was him, I wouldn't have known it was him because he has... He's now so much more closer. He's so much more closer. He's closer to the material. He's closer to the, yeah, to what's behind it, than just the data, mm-hmm. than just the science, right? Yeah. Uh, and in this, in this, uh, in this talk, on this podcast, he was actually sharing. Um, of just, I think they asked him what he was most proud of, and he said his marriage. Yeah. So he's been married like thirty nine years, and right. you could hear him get a little choked yeah, up yeah. on the podcast, right? Which you have never heard that 10 years ago from a Jim Collins. You yeah. just wouldn't have. Um, but but again, it's that EQ that I think that 
that I think people sometimes think is, um, I don't want to say a sign of weakness, but maybe you're not as strong as you need to be, yeah. right? Because right. that that certainly was not the 80s style of no, management to, to have that sort of, you know, and you still got to get stuff done, right? Yeah. right. You still got to move the organization forward. You got to accomplish sure. your goals and objectives, right? Yeah. But it's that human piece mm-hmm. that you're talking about that, that I think is not, is not taught as much. Yeah. Vulnerability is... Vulnerability, a, that's it. And whatever, I'm not sure what the full equivalent would be in, in the business space, but if there is a, a term that covers being, you know, occupationally vulnerable, yeah. uh, <laughs> you yeah. could, that there's, there's something in that, that that we don't allow people to be... I think people want transparency. I think people want that yeah. authenticity. Um, and and um, which I've really enjoyed this conversation so much because I think you've been that. And I think, uh, you know, I think you are that. And I think that now more than ever, I think especially as, you know, we talk about how we invest in the next group of leaders, mm-hmm. the next generation of of leaders, which, you know, we... You know, we both have living in our respective homes. Yes. You know, as, you know, we think about that. You know, times you know, three yeah. billion or whatever. Uh, but I think that 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 they can sniff that out. I think they can sniff out a lack of transparency and a lack of authenticity. And and I think that that I think that that if if we can have that, if we can be if we can be vulnerable inside of our own little units then I think we have a shot at being able to bring that into the workplace and into the organizational cultures that we're trying to build. I just think it's yes. I just think it's incredibly important. Yeah. It it matters. It does yeah. There's nothing quite like being able to be who you really are in the place where you work. Yeah. Like that absolutely feels like it's always a good sign for yep. something great to happen. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, this is this has been really amazing. Thank you so much for taking yeah. so much time out of your day to have this conversation with me. Thanks for letting me come and be a part of it. This is uh, my pleasure for sure. So, if anyone wants to learn more about the organization Bloodwater, what's the yeah. easiest way for them to be able to find out? Well, we have a website, and that you can go to bloodwater.org, and that's a great place to to see all the different kinds of work we're doing. Um, you can meet our African partners there, and. Uh, and if you're interested in supporting what we're doing, you can also make a donation over there. Awesome. So, awesome. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dan Hasseltine. Thank you so much for listening to the Cutting Onions podcast. If you are enjoying these conversations with leaders across the spectrum of leadership development and culture building, please leave us a rating and a review wherever you consume content. This helps us so much to stay visible and relevant amongst all of the business podcasts out there. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week for another episode. The music for today's episode was composed and produced by Charlie Lowell, Stephen Mason, Matt Odemark, and Dan Hasseltine of Jars of Clay.